KBOO Portland, 90.7 FM and KBOO.FM online. to Transpositive here on KBOO Community Radio. Um, tonight we are talking with Anna Freya and um, Leah Lefevre, um, and we're going to be talking tonight about electrolysis. So um, welcome to Transpositive. Thank you so much. Hi. I'm, we're super happy, super happy to be here. Yeah, so I'll start off. Um, my name's Leah, I'm 23, and um, I started doing electrolysis about a year ago. Um, I did aesthetic school and then did some training, um, and now we're set up here in Vancouver, Washington. Um, and it's just been really fun. Like, I spent so long trying to figure out what I wanted to do. I knew I wanted to help people in some sort of way, but it took me a while to figure out this like niche part of healthcare. So yeah. Great. And Anna, could you tell us a little bit about yourself too? Sure, I'm Anna. I'm Leah's wife and office manager. I'm also a vocal coach and as a member of the community myself, I've 
been through these kind of services. I saw the need that was out there and kind of knew from a lot of personal experience too, like brainstorming a little bit, how could we make this as effective and comfortable as possible for, for other people? Mm -hmm. Oh, that's great. Um, so let's start kind of with a big picture of you of what we're talking about, just for people who may not even be familiar. Um, so we're uh, this is part of a service providers on Transpositive, where we talk with people who provide services to transgender people, including uh, vocal training, electrolysis, fashion consulting, um, you know, even even anti-oppression work, because that's really important uh, in our community too, that people kind of look at tools for anti-oppression and like incorporate that into their work. So um, it's a pretty broad spectrum. And, um, you know, um, electrolysis was one of those things that um, is definitely an important part of, of healthcare for transgender people, um, along with having um, access to hormones, having access to surgery, having access to uh, appropriate mental health care, and also having access to therapists in order to get letters. Um, it's all part of a package that transgender people utilize in order to um, both reduce their gender dysphoria and to come into alignment with their gender identity. So, um, I'd like to kind of start with the big picture. Let's talk about electrolysis. What is electrolysis? And um, why do transgender people come to you for electrolysis? Absolutely. So electrolysis is F the only FDA approved permanent hair removal. So a lot of trans folks um, come to me to remove any hair that causes them dysphoria and also for the preparation for any gender affirming surgeries. So um, we help make sure that the areas are clear for the doctors to then perform the surgery so that there's no hair growing anywhere that they don't want it to. Um, so yeah, that's kind of the very broad view. Um, the technique is, um, it is a very small hair size needle that goes into a handle I insert the needle into the follicle next to the hair and then send an electric charge to the end of the hair at the hair root. It then kills the hair at the hair root and I pull it out and that hair is dead and it will never grow again. And then they say, ouch. Yeah, and it is pretty yeah. bad. So there's a couple things that I do to um, kind of help people be more comfortable. Um, we have a, a couple places that we know of um, who sell <clears throat> numbing cream for people so they can um, numb their skin before so that it's a little more tolerable. Um, there's also some doctors and dentists that do nerve block numbing injections. Um, so that can be helpful as well. Um, also, I try to be conservative with how hot I'm making my settings um, so that it doesn't damage the skin more than necessary um, or have no damage at all. That's the goal is no skin damage. <laughs> mm -hmm. So um, the lower the settings, the less damage it's going to be and the less chance of secondary infection and faster healing. So that is something that we together figured out because I did a lot of practicing on my wife, uh, especially during school. So how did that feel, Anna? Uh, having done so much electrolysis in my life, I always kind of know there's going to be a certain level of discomfort. But putting together what she was learning in school with my experiences as a patient, it's the most tolerable experience I've ever had. Mm -hmm. So it hurts. That doesn't mean you have to be jumping out of your skin every hair. It doesn't have to be like that. Yeah. So kind of together, we were able to figure out a technique that works really well for me. Um, and it was super awesome to be able to practice and have such an experienced patient so that they could tell me or she could tell me 
um, what exactly, you know, hurt the most, what hurt the least, what can we do to change it? What if we turn it down? What if we change the probe size? What if we do this? So we kind of figured it all out until I figured out what works best for me and other people and for Anna. And for my part, not only can I last longer for, for more treatment time in one sitting, how quickly my skin heals, and I've seen it for the other people she works on too, um, it can heal in a day or two. It doesn't need to take a week, week and a half. And that's been really cool. Another thing I do as well is I do more of a, a thinning technique instead of a clearing technique. Um, so that I'm not overheating one area of the skin too much so it can heal quicker than if I were to do an area in an excessive amount and clear every single hair out of that one little area, it's going to make the skin more irritated because more heat is being put in that area. So mm -hmm. I kind of figured out while learning on Anna that if we don't do every single hair, and we kind of move on when the skin starts to get red and irritated and hurt to like hurt more than other places. And we know that that area is done and we're ready to move on to a different area that hopefully won't hurt so bad. So just kind of a lot of communication, a lot of talking, a lot of do you need a break? Um, do you want something to squeeze? How can we make this as comfortable as possible? Um, yeah, because it is it's very painful and it can. It, it's serious like it can be torture so um, we take it very seriously and make sure that our clients are feeling safe um, feeling seen feeling heard and feel like they can tell me when they've had enough <laughs> mm -hmm. we're talking tonight here on KBU with electrologist uh, Leo Fever and um, her wife and office manager Anna Freya um, you're, you're located in Vancouver? Yes. Yeah. Okay, cool. Um, so tell me, uh, why do people, why do transgender people come to see electrologists? Like what, what do they have done? Where, what do they, wh why, why do they do it? So there's, you can't hit everyone with one explanation why they're, what their motivations are, but there's three main camps. <laughs> One, and I think the one we see the most, is facial hair. So when you take uh, HRT when you're trans-feminine, your body hair will experience a thinning out over the period of a few years gradually. And you might see some regrowth of the hair on your head if you had recession. Unfortunately, while body hair will thin out and head hair seems to grow better, at least to a point, depending on the person, of course, facial hair, it's not gonna go away all by itself. So if you start to develop a girlier face and figure, and that's very euphoric, but then you still have to shave every day. And in a lot of cases for, for uh, us ladies and trans femme non-binary folks, you still have shadow even if you shave completely smooth. So it can be dysphoric to have uh, shadow on your lip or your chin, even if you're shaving every day and wearing makeup very vigilantly. And then just to like the euphoria of having smoother skin on your face versus what it's like if you have facial hair, you constantly have to shave. Uh, is a really awesome feeling as well. Um, so dysphoria around facial hair is probably the most common. A close second, if not a tie, is people of all different identities um, needing hair removed from a certain area of their body for gender-affirming surgery prep, specifically bottom surgery. So for trans femme folks that are getting some form of uh, vaginoplasty, Typically, surgeons require that hair has to be removed from the <clears throat> genital areas because what's Ouch. on the, yes, mm -hmm. what 
what's on the outside ends up on the inside and vaginas aren't supposed to grow hair. Yeah, so most of the time, well, all the time for vaginoplasty um, and labiaplasty, they want 90% of the hair gone. So they can do some follicle scraping, but they don't obviously want to scrape the tissue too much. So they want 90% clear um, and they can do a little bit of scraping of a very small amount of vellus hair. So, um, yeah. There are some surgeons that don't require it, but it does mean when they're in there doing vaginoplasty, they have to do more follicle scraping from underneath the skin and like electrocauterization of the hairs from the underside of the skin. And there is a concern in a lot of circles that doing too much of that versus doing hair removal before surgery may thin out the skin and lead to issues of durability or healing, possible nerve damage. So the idea is that the more hair you can remove prior to surgery and the less of that they have to do, the better your vaginoplasty results are in theory going to be. So one of the things I really appreciated that you mentioned, Anna, um, when you were describing bottom surgery was that you didn't specifically gender it. So are there other instances yeah. where people have, can you talk about that? Sure. Um, so for trans mask folks as well, if you're getting phalloplasty, especially there are other, um, there are other gender affirming bottom surgeries, but especially for phalloplasty, it's pretty common to use a section of skin from a donor site, frequently the forearm, but sometimes the thigh as well. Um, and typically when they're using that to create the shaft of the, the new penis, they're going to want the hair removed from that as well. That's, that's a pretty common ask. So trans mask folks that want to get phalloplasty specifically may have to come in and get a section of their forearm or their, or their thigh cleared by electrolysis. So no hairy penises and no hairy vagina. Yes. What's wrong with the hairy vagina? Hair growing on the inside of the vagina can be painful, uncomfortable, and also cause infection. Okay. So if you get a vaginoplasty and then you didn't get all the hair, we would have to do electrolysis on the inside of the vaginal canal. And that is a very hard thing to do. Um, I have never done that. Double ouch, double, triple ouch. Yeah, it's very tricky. It's <clears throat> very procedure-like. It's very, um, it's a very sensitive thing. So we just try to get it all done before so we don't have to do any of that. How do you even like see in there? It's like, they use, it's like you're going into the magic cave. I mean, where, how do you even see? You, you have to use an extra long handle that the, that mm -hmm. the probe goes inside of. And then you have to use, um, what are they called? The scope? You have to use like a doctor's. A vaginal scope, pretty much. It's like a little that you know goes in and clicks open and then has a light so basically really a, bright a, that'd be really a speculum a speculum that's what the word uh -huh. is. Uh, okay yeah like a speculum that's just like super bright mm -hmm. it has like just an led like show everything yeah, yeah um, it's clear and then it has a mm. super bright led so that you can even like if you have to see through it you can so oh gosh the stress. And you, you probably got to be, I mean, I would have to be under anesthesia to do that. It's like, yeah. I've already had surgery once. I've already gone through all this electrolysis once. It's like, there's no way I'm like letting myself have that happen to me. It's like, I will totally go see you or some other provider to like get that taken care of before I ever have surgery. Yeah. I mean, I've already had it, but if I was. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And yeah. To be clear, um, a lot of times they'll tell you if you have hair growing inside that they discover that you're just out of luck. We do want to be clear that that's not true. It can still be removed. Yes. But there are so few people that can practice that. 
And while we don't offer that at the moment, our goal is to get some additional training so we can, so we can help those people too. Yeah. Because they shouldn't have to just be out of luck. No, you shouldn't have to. Yeah. Do that. If it's affecting your quality of life, there you just you deserve to have help. So the goal is just to help as in as in many ways as I can. And mm-hmm. yeah, so I'll get more training, hopefully. Well, I will get more training, but it might take a little bit of a little while. Um, but only because there's not a lot of people that know how to do it. So um, yeah. So Leah, how did you how did you become interested in, in this line of work? How did you start, you know, your career as an electrologist? Yeah, so I actually went to an electrolysis appointment with Anna when we first started dating, and I just talked to her other electrologist about, like, how there wasn't a lot of providers and how, like, they needed more people, and she was really full, and um, how it can pay you know it can pay pretty well especially from insurance companies um so and it wasn't very much school it was like only six months of school compared to other things that require like you know four or five year college degree that is not something that i wanted to do oh yeah yeah so it's a lot less money a lot less school so that was one thing that was like really great and it was like all hands-on and I I imagine it's hands-on I don't know what else it would be I'm a very there was obviously a lot of anatomy learning and book work but I'm very like I want to learn from the book and then do it with my hand so that I really learn how to do it that's how I learn that's good yeah yeah and then so glad to hear that yeah and then i was also like you know i want to help people and i love my community so why not help you know help the community be there for people who really need it and make something that is super painful and almost torture like and try to make it tolerable at least for people and have them have a good experience with it have them be able to come to a safe place where they're not going to be judged or anything and they'll be treated like a human and yeah so I was just like it all was like lining up and makes so much sense and we just decided to go for it. That's great. What is What are some of the things that you do to help make it more comfortable for people to have electrolysis because I know it's a pretty painful procedure. Yeah so with my techniques is um we figured out over you know the six months to a year that i practiced on her um, <laughs> specifically you're I like, the guinea pig anna yeah, yeah. she was mm-hmm. <laughs> um but hey free hair removal you know yeah. we um sorry i'm losing my train of thought what do you do to make it less okay. awful so we keep the settings lower that was that's a big thing so keeping my settings as low as possible because the higher the settings for thermolysis the hotter and the more powerful the zap is going to be inside of the follicle so trying to keep that as low as possible while still killing the hair is um is one of the ways that i do it and then i try to use I try to use a little bit smaller of a probe size than the hair itself so that it slides in without feeling like I'm stabbing, you know? Um, Also, with how I'm inserting it, I'm doing it very carefully and slow and really gentle so that I'm not drilling um, because I want it to, I don't want them to feel as much as possible so being really gentle being really careful making sure people aren't cold or if they're too hot turn on a fan i have um stress balls those are great they're cupcakes they're awesome i love them (laughs) 
and then, oh, stress balls. Mm-hmm. Yes, they're like the foam ones, you know, they just like squish all the way down. You can squeeze them really hard. Um, and then also um, providing um, affordable, a place that has affordable numbing cream that is really going to work. Um, that's another thing as well. Um, Does lidocaine work? Yes. Um, but you can only get 5% it's like lidocaine 5%, yeah. without mm-hmm. a prescription. Yeah. So you can't, can you get cream more than 5% like from a prescription from a doctor? What a doctor will prescribe is going to depend on the doctor. Um, usually what they're going to be giving you is it's lidocaine, but there's other compounds mixed in that have different half-lives than lidocaine. So benzocaine, tetracaine, and there there are others out there as well. But usually yeah. those three are uh, made in conjunction when you buy higher end numbing cream, usually by prescription. Yeah. So that can be really, really helpful too. Um, and just knowing, knowing where to send people for those um, in case they don't want to have to get a prescription or anything like that. Um, also knowing um, doctors and dentists to go to to get numbing injections that takes the pain away completely. Um, so that's helpful for some people. Oh, that's a good idea. I never thought of that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So we know there's a couple of doctors that we know, um, clinics that we know of that do um, genital injections um, mm-hmm. for genital electrolysis and then facial too, right? For the upper lip and the chin area, yeah. We're, we, we're batting zero with finding someone who can numb the whole face, but we have some things in, uh, in the works behind the scenes to try and make that a reality here too. Yeah, we're always trying to find, we really want to be able to find somebody that can like do all of it. Mm-hmm. I think I found a clinic that will. Um, they're looking for training right now. And I think I set them up with somebody. Yeah, I, I don't want to say too much uh, and hype up people just to knock them back down, but um, things are in motion. Yeah. I think um, the easiest thing to do is just to like put me in a coma. Just put me in a coma, wake me up in six months. There's only, there's one clinic that does that in. Oh no, I was just joking. Okay. It's not six months. <laughs> like they use yeah. anesthesia to like put you under and then they do like a long uh, hours. I see. Okay, yeah. yeah. I think there's. Well, that sounds them. really involved. Yeah. It is very involved and they're like. Yeah, that requires MD supervision. Yeah, anesthesiologist. So. Uh, you know, a doctor, and then whole other level of uh, expense and professionals involved in your care at that point. Yeah. You know, it's actually more fun to like just use lidocaine and kind of grimace and scream a little bit because then you have something to remember. (laughs) Yeah, because it's like, I remember my electrologist so well. It was uh, Jamie. Yeah, Jamie over downtown Portland. She did a great job and it hurt like hell. But yeah. I'm really happy with the results. So I'm sure yeah. that's how your clients feel too. Yeah. Um, so Leah, Anna, tell us again. Oh, sorry. Go ahead. Oh, no. Go ahead. I was just going to say a comment, but go right ahead. Yeah, no, please go ahead. We're, we're just getting kind of near the end of the segment of the show. So. Oh, yeah. I was just going to say that... Um, it's my favorite thing to see for clients to tell me that like, oh, I'm so happy with my results. Like, it looks like it's like clearing up and like going away and my skin feels so great. And like, it only took two days to heal. I'm always just like so happy when I hear it. I'm like, yes, it's so awesome. That's so great. That's so great. So if people would like to like reach out to you or find out more about your services, where can they find you? Yeah, so we have a website. It's www.realuaesthetics.com. And the aesthetics is spelled with an A-E. 
Um, we also have a phone number, 360-217-4205, and you can call or text at any time with any questions. Um, and then we also have an email, and that is contact at realuesthetics.com. Um, I think that pretty much sums up everything. Yeah, we're just really excited to that everything is that we're set up and we're I'm actually taking clients and just so happy to be here. So thank you. So, so thanks so much for joining us on Transpositive tonight. Of course. Thank sure. you so much for having us. Um, good evening. You're listening to Transpositive here on KBOO Community Radio. Um, so tonight, uh, for the second half of the show, we are going to be talking about um, current events in the news, uh, different things that are affecting the transgender community, and uh, kind of offer some of our own commentary on that. Um, uh, my name is Emma, and I use she and her pronouns. And I'm here with Sheila, and she and her are fine. Thanks, Sheila. So, um, I guess Sheila, you know, there's there's been so much that's happened in the news in the last three weeks, last four weeks since we've talked, and it's just um, kind of kind of mind-boggling. I mean, I think that we all saw this coming. I thought I think that we saw. Um, a shift to a more conservative Supreme Court. And we know that down the line, it's definitely going to affect trans rights in some way, but we're, we're not sure how yet. But the courts definitely signaled that. So why don't we start, let's just start tonight by just talking about the really big stuff. Let's talk about the SCOTUS uh, last week of session of like seven or eight different rulings at least one of which is directly going to have an effect on, it could definitely have an effect on some aspect of trans rights. And that's, um, you know, kind of a challenging of the uh, right to privacy under the 14th Amendment. So, Sheila, what do you think about all that? Well, it helps to understand how recent privacy life, how, how recent privacy law in some respects is. Um, privacy law is something that's just kind of grown up gradually and as each new privacy right has become part of daily life um, Americans have gotten to the idea that they will be permanent fixtures and the reason that they feel strongly that they will be permanent fixtures is because um, the test is the highest constitutional level which is strict scrutiny and means that the state has to have a compelling interest uh, to regulate in that area. And they have to narrowly tailor the means to achieve the state end. And people will always look at the Ninth Amendment, um, which says that there are rights that are not enumerated in the Constitution that nevertheless exist. But in all the history of Supreme Court decisions, there's there's virtually no Ninth Amendment uh, actual decisions that have said, okay, this is the reason we're 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 recognizing the right, <clears throat> which means that the Ninth Amendment is sort of a background buzz, sort of like the Tenth Amendment, and it doesn't really have any attached jurisprudence to it. And so, what really comes down to is that the credibility of the court depends upon its ability to speak to the people and to some extent to embody the type of society that we all want to live in. And the problem is that our country right now has not decided what kind of society they want to live in. And there's such a down the middle divergence 
that almost all the decisions that are of consequence keep coming on down in five to four split. And that makes the court look political. And when the court looks political, it loses credibility. Yeah. Well, what um, this really does for the trans community is it puts certain aspects of trans rights in jeopardy um, due to the 14th Amendment challenge to the right to privacy um, by by ruling the way that the court did um, at the end of last month it basically said that the precedents all precedents that are related to the right to privacy even including intermarriage uh, which was not enumerated but um, all of the right to privacy arguments can now be um, challenged on the basis that according to the current interpretation of the Constitution by the Supreme Court, there is no inherent right to privacy under the Constitution. And think about that. It may may have to be cut a little finer than that um, to be strictly accurate Um, because it was only Judge Thomas's opinion that hinted that they might go after the other privacy rights. Right. It was the only his... reason I mentioned that is 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 to is to not have us get too depressed. But I think it's important maybe tonight to discuss since since our biggest problem is reaching the American public with so that they understand transgender issues. How how can we approach that in an educational fashion as opposed to a strictly legal fashion? Mm-hmm. Right, and because we still have state rights, our own our own state of Washington and Oregon are far more protective of trans rights than the federal government. Yeah, that's true. And we, yeah, we. I mean, we do have states' rights, but the reason that the federal government is there with a set of backup rights is because sometimes. You need the unified power of the federal government to deal with issues where states' rights still violate civil and human rights. So if there's a state that, uh, like, for instance, so let's talk about, let's let's move around a little bit in our, in our conversation. Uh, let's talk about this uh, one in Florida. So in Florida, they, uh, the... Uh, what was it? It was a Surgeon General. Uh, there was a public hearing in Florida this week past because um, there's a report that uh, the governor and um, the governor and other people in the Florida government want to take away uh, Medicaid access for treatment of issues related to gender identity under the Florida Medicaid rules, which I'm not absolutely certain of, but I think that would actually violate federal policy. Yeah, it says the state's proposed rule, according to the Tampa Bay Times, the state's proposed rule would violate both the U.S. and state constitutions. Um, <clears throat> so I don't know, have you, have you heard anything about that? Um, Sheila, I I I'd, I'd heard a little bit about it, but not sufficient to make any kind of a um, a judgment about it. But of course, we we know that Florida is is not a trans friendly area to to live, and yeah. and as individual trans people, I think what we're always trying to ask ourselves is. You know, how, above all, how can we deal with the intimate situations of our lives? How can we deal with the people who matter to us, our job, our, our lodgings, our, our, um, our families, our religion, uh, all the things that affect us when, when certain things come down on us? And um, we always hope for good press. Um, because in the last analysis, the, the, the ultimate guarantee of all rights um, is, is hopefully not having to enforce them because they're seen as so normal 
that you don't have to fight for them. They're just part of the background of the way the society operates. And trans people were getting and 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 are getting to the point where we're, we don't raise eyebrows as much as we used to, and we're not seen as being threatening people. But certain people find us extremely threatening, and we have to ask ourselves why, and what are the touchstones that, that, that get their, their hackles up? And also, um, what is the kind of thing that makes us look bad? Um, I was gonna touch on the monkeypox issue, because the news that's been coming out lately is that the predominant, there's been, I think, about 900 cases, you know, uh, just slightly less under 900 cases nationwide, but it's all over the country, including in Oregon, and most of the cases are in the LGBT community. Well, that brings back a lot of memories of the AIDS uh, pandemic uh, in, the, in the LGBT community, and that didn't help us in in, in at least on the short term. In the short term, it made us seem to be sexually irresponsible because these are seen as semi-sexually transmitted diseases. And so I'm very cautious the minute something starts branding our community as being um, uh, carriers of a plague. And that was the way it was always put forward with regard to AIDS in the early days. I remember how horrible that was. So this monkeypox issue has actually gotten my attention lately because I keep asking myself, how is this going to play? Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. I've, I've heard, I've heard a little bit about it. I mean, mostly I've heard that it's there's not a lot of cases of it right now, and that it's not specifically that it's. I mean, it's not specifically sexual. It has more to do with physical touch which could be sexual, but it's, it's spread among a few, you know, a few people through touch. So I, I don't know. I mean, mm-hmm. yeah, go ahead. Well, like one of the things they always used to say about um, people in, in the caste system of India is the lowest caste were considered the untouchables. Yeah. And, Anything that makes us seem like we're moral lepers or physical lepers or that somehow we are unsavory people uh-huh. only adds to the narrative that wants to restrict us. Yeah. Well, see, this is, okay, this is why. So what happened with overturning, you know, Roe last, like last month part of the reason I want to talk about that as it relates to trans rights is because, I mean, I know that like, at least within, I, I, I know that you're we're on, not on the same side on this one, Sheila, but <clears throat> I do know that you recognize that this is a step backwards for women. I mean, and all women felt it, you know, I mean, we, we all felt it, including trans women. I mean, we felt this wave roll over us and it's pushing us down, you know, and it's something that we feel collectively. And, you know, for sure that, like, if they're going after, you know, women's rights, women's autonomy over their bodies, they're going to also go after trans people's rights and our autonomy over our bodies. And if they're going to try to limit women's access to hormones, and to contraception, which, you know, they've said they're going after hormones and contraception. I, I don't understand that at all, but that's what they've said. And if they're going to go after hormones and contraception, then they're going to go after it for trans folks too. You know, I'm already hearing from people who can't get some of their medication that they use to treat cancer and that they use to treat chronic fatigue syndrome. I've heard that there's some medications people aren't able to get now because of these rulings and concern that these medications can be used for other purposes. And this is just the beginning. I mean, it's a whole new area. And because they've said, they've thrown up their hands and said, oh, we're going to let the states do it, then there's a whole new set of consequences that are going to be different for every state. 
and they can be changing all the time. It's going to be, it's a step backwards. I mean, I just can't, I can't see it in any other way other than it's a step backwards for everyone, for people of color, for LGBTQ people, for women, you know, really, I mean, for everyone who's gotten rights in the last 50 years, it's a step backwards trying to take those rights away. Anyways, that's how I see it. What do you think about that, Sheila? Well, my first thought on the road decision is to see it from a, from a perspective of the, the national government saying, we no longer see this as a fundamental right. And then that throws it into the national legislature and it throws it into the states. And so in a sense, it's not as so much a ruling. The idea that it took a right away is, is that it, 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 it surprised people because of the sheer extent of, of, of reversing something that has been hardwired into the system for such a long time. And that's why, considering that, it would have had a lot more credibility for the court to say, we're going to, we're going to demand a, a real majority on this. We're going to have to have more, more judges on board with this. Because the problem is, once again, credibility of the Supreme Court as an institution. If it appears to be political, it, it doesn't just lose Roe versus Wade. It loses everything else that goes to the Supreme Court. And it raises questions about things like the Commerce Clause. That ra there's, there's so many things that that are, are it's sort of like picturing a, something built out of bricks. And, and, and if, if you, if you move something down, that's, that's had other bricks stashed on top of it, you it's like that old game of that stack attack. And you, if you pull out the wrong thing, everything comes crumbling. Mm -hmm. And, uh, and so, um, but, but recently just watching the presidency and watching the kind of guy we can get into the presidency indicates that our sense that government is sort of like celestial up there very wise people with all kinds of checks and balances to even run for president. You have to be a really thoroughly qualified human being. Um, uh, I sort of, I guess my feeling is after Trump, um, it sort of, I think it, it sort of told us all that, especially watching the hearings now and seeing the, the full extent of the implications with the Trump presidency is that I think we're all feeling very insecure because we look at things and we thought, no, no, the infrastructure is really solid. There's revolutions that happen in other countries. Civil wars happen. Assassinations happen. I mean, watching Abe get assassinated in Japan. Um, there's things that are happening nowadays that are very disturbing for everybody. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, I mean, I think <clears throat> I think it's a backlash. I I I feel like it's a backlash, and if it's a backlash, that means that we've made so much progress that the right has become so concerned over the progress that we have that this is how they're responding. The thing is, I, I mean, that they're in a minority position. I mean, every Supreme Court justice who's been nominated since 2000 by a Republican has been nominated by someone who won a minority, who won less of the popular vote than their Democratic challenger, and they were still put into place, you know. And that's where the Supreme Court justices are coming from. They're coming from a majority of the more red states. They're, you know, low population density, uh, you know, low levels of education, uh, low levels of, you know, annual income. I mean, these are these are states that are highly dependent on the government and on government, you know, programs. And these are the same, the very same states that are like wanting to take away the those those supports 
the things that are there to really support them by protecting their environment, by protecting their health, by protecting their civil rights, by protecting their voting rights, you know, all of these things. And there's this movement among mostly, uh, you know, I'm basically talking about as uneducated white Southerners and other rural folks who, you know, think that destroying the government and basically destroying your possibility of a, a future, you know, is, is, is the best choice for you. You know, vote for somebody who's going to, uh, you know, help contribute to global warming and, you know, contribute to environmental degradation. It is, you know, definitely solidly against your rights as a queer, queer person. Speaking of which, going back to this case in Florida, I think that what, what I found so disturbing about the thing, about the public hearing that they had in Florida, I mean, it, it was like a circus. It was, it, was, it was just, it was a three ring circus organized mostly by the religious right. And they're, what they're trying to do is they're trying to, they're, they're, they're trying to make transgender people look like they're, um, I, I, don't, I don't know what, to like they're, they're wrong in every way. That's exactly what they're trying to do. And they're using trans children uh, in this really awful way against the entire transgender community. They're making this argument that uh, Medicaid, Medicaid dollars should not go to hormones. They should not go to puberty blockers for trans kids. They shouldn't go to any kind of surgery. That all of these things are not medically necessary and therefore not eligible for federal Medicaid dollars, not just for trans teens, but like for all transgender people. And it's estimated, um, according to one number that I read, at least 9,000 people in Florida who currently receive Medicaid would not receive Medicaid in the future for treatment of any issues related to their transgender care. And to me, I mean, if you're gonna treat someone who has diabetes, if you're going to treat someone who has a broken leg, if you're going to treat someone who's depressed, why aren't you going to treat transgender people? I mean, gender identity, this is a legitimate medical diagnosis. I mean, it's... I, mm -hmm. I have a thought on all this, is that um, for a long time, I think people have gotten almost to the thought that government can do what governments really don't do. They, they're not as caretaking. Uh, I mean, look, look at how, how we don't have Medicare for all and every other developed country has, just look at the stats um, and how, how we compare with them. Um, um, America is, is, is always lagging behind in these, in these key indicia of what it takes to have a civilized, really up-to-date society. So I'm, I'm not surprised when things go bad, but what it always does is I thought it throws me back to history to say, how do you survive when, um, when there's nobody, when there's nobody really there at the biggest level to have your back? And the answer is you have to organize. Um, this is how the unions got started. This is why the Wobblies that were such an important part of American culture, uh, you know, uh, the, the battles, the literally pitched battles to just get an eight hour working day in Detroit, Michigan. Um, the, the, the terrible um, uh, problems with the unionizing the garment industry, the mines, um, the trans community, um, is going to have to become more sophisticated. It's going to have to be much more aware of exactly what's going on right next door. Because, and if, if, if people say, you know, we can't, we can't live in some of these states that are passing these laws against us, then the answer has to be, at least in America, you're not, you're not, you're not having to go to another country, but it may be a good idea to leave Florida. And that's yeah. easier said than done. If you've got a job or a family and you, and you love the area and it, you should never be driven out. 
but let's look at the history of the world and how oftentimes people have had to make massive changes just to survive or to have the kind of life that they really want to have. Yeah. Here's another, here's another example of the, how the, um, the, 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 uh, how the ruling on Roe can also affect transgender people. Um, here, uh, according to, who is this? Oh, according to PBS NewsHour, um, Alabama cites the abortion ruling to argue for a transgender medication ban. Days after, according to PBS NewsHour, days after the U.S. Supreme Court ruled that states can prohibit abortion, Alabama has seized on the decision to argue that the state should also be able to ban gender-affirming medical treatments for transgender youth. There's going to be a lot of societal fallout from this that the sociologists will be studying for years of how does this translate when it actually goes into work in the real world. And that's why legal decisions are are almost unpredictable in their consequences until first they're made. And law is not an empirical study. It's a, it's a, it works from a kind of a deductive mode of thinking from um, precedent and from um, kind of the desire to frame the trunk of the tree. But it's only when you get out on the branches and you see how if the trunk is leaning in a certain direction, what does that do to the branches and the leaves and the twigs? You have to consider all of that. And I'm afraid that a lot of people have said, oh, this is just like a touchdown. And that, that's an arrogant position to take. You, it, there should be a humility here that says, okay, we're going to have now a lot of people that need our help, and we better figure out how we're going to get our social... So um, another thing that the Alabama ruling, the Alabama governor, governor already did, in addition to this attempt to connect the um, the overturning of Roe with denying transgender people medication in Alabama, um, what the governor already did do was sign into law a ruling this spring, making it a crime punishable by up to 10 years in prison to dispense medications, certain medications to minors <laughs> to help with their gender transition. So well, it you looks can, like... You can see how they're, yeah. Yeah, they're going in their wish list, you know. But, but doesn't, doesn't that, you know, how does that actually play in the whole country when you do stuff like that, when you say things like that? I don't know if have they passed these rules yet. Uh, well, the, this was just in Alabama, but apparently it was challenged right away by a federal judge. Um, and it's, it actually and, made it. It made it through the legislature. Then it actually got enacted. And oh yeah. Into law. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it sure did. Yeah. Well, that that sort of tells you that Alabama. I mean. You know, it, it's so it's it's it shouldn't really surprise us, except that things have gone very well for so long that when you hear that there are revolutions in other countries and you know uh, Ukraine is being you know bombed to pieces by Russia, uh, why should we ever be surprised if some part of our country might go completely wacko? Um, yeah. You know, it, it just happens. Yeah. Well, I still, I mean, I still think, though, that part of the reason that there's so much of backlash right now is because we've made so much progress. And because we've made so much progress, I mean, we have to expect that there's going to be an attempt to curb that. And maybe that's just part of what happens when there's changes to the society. You know, it, it takes a little while for it to level out but maybe over time you know backlashes like this will become less common and eventually there'll be a new norm which accepts and incorporates LGBTQ people into every aspect of our society including our religions including how we view our families 
including what we think is normal and including what we love and celebrate. So, well, Sheila, thanks so much for joining, uh, joining us tonight to talk about current events. You're welcome. Um, and, uh, um, so thanks again for listening to Transpositive tonight. Uh, my name is Emma Lugo, and I'm a co-host. And tonight we were joined by Sheila. Sheila, thanks so much for joining us, and have a great night. Transgender people don't live here. I've never met anyone who's transgender. I swear I don't know someone who's transgender. Transgender and non-binary people like me hear this all the time. But according to the HRC Foundation, there are more than 2 million transgender people in the United States. We live in every community across this country. You might be surprised to hear that there are more transgender and non-binary people in the United States than there are. Starbucks, McDonald's, and Walmart locations combined. In fact, if you put us all together, there'd be more non-binary and transgender folks than the populations of DC, or Nebraska, or Maine, or Idaho, or West Virginia. As a matter of fact, 15 states have a lower population than the amount of trans folks in the U.S. So here are a few things to keep in mind. You don't always know when a person is trans. But we're your neighbors, your co-workers, your students, your customers, and even your friends and family. We exist in every culture, todas las culturas, throughout human history. And while we're more visible than ever before, sometimes you just don't see us. So when you hear about politicians pushing forward discriminatory bills, know this, these bills address problems that aren't even real. Problems that don't actually exist. But we do. 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 And we need your support.